This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, let's get to our hot question of the day today. And today we're talking about an etiquette question. We are going to be exploring this a little further in the show today. But essentially, it's about how you refer to people you've just met. Do you use the title? What did you teach your kids on this? We're going to be running a little video, a little audio later of Dr. Maya Angelou, of course, poet, writer, uh she was addressing uh, someone who was talking to her. Somebody had a question for her, and it was a young girl who referred to her as Maya. And Dr. Angelou said, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. That is not how you refer to me. You and gave her a whole long list of the ways that she should be approached. Have a listen to this. What a question. Yeah, I wanted to ask Maya her views on interracial relationships. Oh, thank you. And first, I'm Miss Angelou. Kim, you had a question. Kim, you had a question. Yeah, I wanted to ask Maya her views on interracial relationships. Oh, thank you. And first, I'm Miss Angelo. Miss Angelo. Yes, ma'am. I'm not Maya. I'm 62 years old. (laughs) I have lived so long and tried so hard that a young woman like you or any other has no, you have no license to come up to me and call me by my first name. That's first. That's first. Also, because at the same time, I am your mother, I'm your auntie, I'm your teacher, I'm your professor. You see? Beautiful, I tell you. I wanted to applaud too when I heard that because she just summed it up so perfectly, right? So we want to know, we're going to talk more about that in terms of etiquette and all of that and get people to weigh in. That's later on in the show. But right now for our hot question of the day, we want to know, do common informal titles like Mr., Ms., Sir, Ma'am, do they matter to you? Like, what did you teach your kids on this? You say, yes, it's just polite. Or do you think, no, that's too old-fashioned? That's our hot question of the day today. You can find it at SimiSarah980 on Twitter. You can go to at CKNW on Twitter as well. Or just email me. And I'm sure you've got a good story about this, about what you taught your kids or maybe what you've learned. Uh, you can email me, simi at cknw.com. Or use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. It's a good question because when we were talking about it just here at work, somebody asked me, well, what about your kids' friends? Like, what do they call you? I said, well, they call me Mrs. You know, blank. Um, until, they, until I say to them, it's okay, you can call me Simmy. So to me, the first thing should be they should refer to you by the formal title when they're first meeting you, especially if they're kids. And then you can tell them, no, no, it's okay, call me this. That to me is just the polite way to go, but maybe that's too old fashioned. I don't know. You tell me. You can email me, simi at cknw.com and cast your vote too. I'm just so fascinated to see how this etiquette question is going to play today for us. Another day, another turn of events in the SNC Lavalin saga. This morning we heard that Jody Wilson-Raybould has submitted a written statement, including text messages and emails to the House of Commons Justice Committee. And potentially there is new information in there about the investigation into these allegations of inappropriate pressure. Now, in the six weeks since this story first broke, it has become hotly debated, both in the political and in the public sphere. So debated, actually, that it becomes difficult to hold a conversation about it, especially online, because of how toxic this has become. That is something that we are going to be talking to Keith Baldry about. He, of course, is the Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Simi. This is something you've definitely noticed, right? Online, I saw you talking about this. Yes, I tweeted that the toxicity of this, the whole SNC, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Justin Trudeau thing, uh, is just something to behold. Um, you know, you've got the government uh, acting incompetent, uh, being accused of being duplicitous. Uh, you've got the opposition, I think, making uh, somewhat hypocritical comments of denouncing Jody Wilson-Raybould for months, if not years, as, as an incompetent AG, and now suddenly she's a, a Mother Teresa. And you've got the media uh, savaging each other, reporters going after other reporters yeah. if they disagree on Twitter about what's go- actually going on here. And it's, uh, it's, it's quite something. I've never actually seen this before. We haven't had a scandal, I think, of this type of, uh, of, this type of scandal take place, uh, which involves, I think, a lot of people with a lot of staked interest. And that includes the, the government, the opposition, and the media. And it's interesting to watch them go at each other's throats and with a ferociousness uh, I think uh, we've not seen before. What do you think is behind that? Why do you think it's so ferocious? Well, it's interesting. I've talked to other reporters as well. There seems to be a pent-up rage in Ottawa at the Trudeau government. 
from uh, from the opposition and from from uh, some members of the media. I'm not sure why that is. Perhaps it's because Trudeau came in promising to do something, uh, do politics differently. Probably uh, was seen as arrogant by some. And when there's a, a we've seen this before in other political stories, when someone a political leader casts him or herself off as superior to everyone else, and you know, we're going to do something differently, and becomes seen as somewhat arrogant and detached. The moment they're vulnerable, that vulnerability is suddenly ripped into and opened right. a mile wide. That might not otherwise occur if that leader had a different type of personality or a different type of approach to the job. So I think that's partly what's on display now, is that there was a little opening there uh, to go after a prime minister who sort of elevated himself above others, and now people are just jumping into this hole and making it a mile wider. Right, I get that. The hypocrisy thing I totally get, right? Because if you build yourself up as something and then you're not that thing, obviously people are going to call you on it. But do you also think that we're being influenced a little bit by the kind of political dynamic that we see happening in the United States? I think so. I think there is this, uh, and I think it's fed by social media. I mean, people behave on social media in a way they would never behave in public. And they say things on Twitter and and other uh, Instagram and Facebook that they wouldn't say in public. And and the criticism level and the the sort of people accusing each other of literally war crimes on something like this, it just is out of proportion necessarily of what's actually going on. I still maintain, I don't think the average person is sitting around the, the workplace right now talking to their work colleagues in earnest about SNC-Lavalin. I mean, I think people talk more about other issues than than uh, necessarily political scandals, but uh, that is not reflected necessarily in a lot of the coverage and the debate around this particular issue. Now, Trudeau government does not help itself at all. By the way, it's handled this thing. It's, yeah. it's just pretending there's nothing to see here, folks. Walk away. Well, as you mentioned, six weeks ago, that was their attitude, and that's their attitude today. Well, it's been six weeks of a death by a thousand cuts, and it's going to continue today with Jody Wilson-Raybould's written testimony, which I gather is now off to uh, the translator for translation, and then presumably will be made public by the Justice Committee, although you never know with the liberal majority there. They may try to try to suppress it. But uh, this shows no signs of going away. But I am struck and alarmed by what I see on social media of people really yeah. ripping into each other in a way that I don't think really fits the story. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. It's just the hyperbole is just out of control on social media on this. Uh, you're also talking about leadership crises as well. Like, I think, is it fair to say, I think, it, and I think it is at this point that the the Justin Trudeau is undergoing a bit of a leadership crisis here. Oh, I think uh, no doubt. And uh, pe- people are debating whether or not this is a coup attempt by Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott. And some people suggest that, and they get vehemently denounced on, on Twitter. Uh, others say, no, this is exactly what's going on. Whether it is or not, there is unprecedented questions about Justin Trudeau's leadership uh, now. And I've got a post, a column out this week. Uh, I'll just point out, we've gone through a number of these things in uh, in British Columbia. The one thing Justin Trudeau has going for him is time. Uh, experience shows us in B.C., if a leader wants to hang on in a parliamentary system, they can hang on for quite a long time before they're forced out. And I think if, uh, if there is a coup attempt going on, you're going to need more than two people at the table uh, to force Justin Trudeau out. There have to be more MPs to add their voices to Wilson-Raybould and Philpott, uh, Jane Philpott in particular, through the entire federal cabinet under the ethical bus, because she basically, denou- in her resignation letter, denounced them all basically as corrupt and dishonest. But unless others come to their aid, uh, with the election only six months away, I just don't think there's time to force Justin Trudeau out, and that's the experience we've got in B.C. Bill Van Der Zam, I spent two and a half years covering a revolt against him before he was finally forced out. Mike Harcourt uh, faced a good year uh, of controversy over Bingo Gate before he decided to step down. Even though I don't think he actually had to step down. Uh, Glenn Clark didn't remind for six months until after the Mounties visited his home with our television uh, uh, crew in tow. Right. And Christy Clark, you know, she had a caucus revolt as well. And what came to her aid and may, may come to Trudeau's aid was the election window. It was she had months of internal turmoil. Then there was an election, and she unexpectedly won. Trudeau now will go presumably. Through through months of internal turmoil. We'll see what level it gets to. But he does have an out, and that's the election in October. And that's where I think uh, the comparison to B.C. is. Right, because you've covered a lot of these types of leadership mm-hmm. issues before, but every leader kind of deals with them differently, right? Like, I mean, look at Gordon Campbell. We didn't get any whiff of any kind of problems until all of a sudden there was, and then he was gone. 
Yeah, well, he had two brushes with it. First of all, remember the drunk driving charge. Right. A lot of people thought, oh, he's toast, he's done. Well, no, he wasn't. In fact, he actually went up in the polls after he had that tearful news conference. And then it took about a year for the HST controversy to finally drag him down to the point where he had to resign. But again, it takes a, these things are not resolved in a matter of weeks. They are resolved over a long period of time, and that's a big advantage Trudeau has right now. For all the grief Wilson Raybould and Phil Part are causing him, and their supporters and sudden supporters in the opposition and some media commentators, uh, there's not enough time necessarily to take him out. So he's got the election on his side, and yeah. that's what we've seen in B.C. before. Leaders can play for time before they go and test their will, uh, test the voters' uh, will at the election. Is that the key then, having an election, but the difference between those who can hang in there and those who have to go? I think that's one of the keys. It does provide uh, judgment to be made uh, from from the ultimate uh, judges, and that's the electorate. Uh, a scandal, and we saw this with Vanderzam. Uh, his problem was he couldn't have an election. He just endured uh, a couple more than two years of internal uh, turmoil, and we're talking serious rebellion. And he finally the, the clock ran out before he could he could go to the electorate, and so he was done. Uh, you know, uh, other Christy Clark again. That that election came in just the right time for her because it put to, it was allowed her to put to rest all the internal dissension in that caucus. It just suddenly went poof out, gone because she was reelected. The 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 voters are the ultimate arbiters here. They're ultimate judges. It's not the opposition. It's not the media. And that's who's going to judge Justin Trudeau at the end of the day. It's going to come in October. And as I say, six months is a lifetime in politics. So what's going on right now may not be what's going on in October. He may be punished yeah. big time by the voters. He may be kicked to the curb. Or if he wins, everything that goes on today is going to be go poof, just like it was, did with Christy Clark. That's exactly what I was thinking, too. So, like, depending on how people vote, then will either cement his hold on the party or will loosen the hold on the party. Exactly. If, if he comes back with a minority government, I think that's going to severely weaken his leadership on the party. Uh, he will have taken an impressive majority down to a minority, and there's going to be rumblings. Uh, I think more knives will come out than just Wilson Raybo and, and Jane Philpotts. But if he can deliver another majority, uh, that cements his hold on the on the on the party leadership. Uh, David Aiken, our, our global colleague in Ottawa, has got a good piece about all the the internal turmoil that's starting to occur in the Liberal Party with people sort of questioning things. That goes away though with an election win. It doesn't go away if it's a minority government. Interesting. Any predictions from you then? Do you think he's going to hang in there? I think he's going to hang in there, and I think uh, I think this will start to ebb in terms of its intensity. Uh, but it may come back again in an election campaign. One thing I've asked liberals: How can you be sure Jody Wilson-Raybould, if she's running as a liberal candidate, or Jane Philpott for that matter, aren't going to say something completely controversial in the middle of an election campaign, and suddenly that becomes the story of the yeah. day, and that would be terrible timing for the Trudeau government. So I'm not sure the final chapter is written on whether Wilson Raybould and Philpott are going to be allowed to remain as, as candidates for the Liberal Party, but as I say, this thing's been unpredictable since day one, so I'm not making any predictions. No kidding on that one. All right, <laughs> Keith, thank you. All right, take care. That is Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. He's got a great piece this week, actually, you can read in your local paper. Uh, about leadership crises and how politicians either get through them or do not get through them. Well, let's talk about foreign investment in real estate in this province. It is a very hot topic. And you may have seen the headlines a couple of days ago on that report that came out from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. They talked about foreign investment in Vancouver as a percentage. And they said it was about like 11%, which is still higher than a lot of the other numbers that we had heard. Well, now, as an update to that story, we actually have a dollar amount on this as well for how we compare uh, to the rest of Canada on this. So let's talk about this with the help of Andy Yan, who is an urban planner and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Andy, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. How much money are we talking about here? We're talking about a cool $75 billion. Like billion with a B. Billion with a B and a pinky next to your mouth. Oh, wow. uh, oh, billion, yes. $75 billion that are owned by non-residents, that has non-resident participation in residential real estate in metropolitan Vancouver. Okay, so this is for all of Metro Vancouver, mm-hmm. $75 billion. Do Is mm-hmm. that how much is currently owned by foreign investors? Um, well, I think it's important to note that we're talking about non-residents. 
and that it's it's non-resident participation to be very very specific but that's that's how much would be owned by by folks who don't who don't particularly live in Canada that, that don't have a permanent tax residence in Canada okay so do you think that's a lot higher than I think what we thought it's a lot higher but here's the interesting story Sammy is that it's actually a lot higher than say Metro Toronto uh, Metro Toronto, to compare to Vancouver's seventy-five billion, is only forty-four billion, and that's a city that's almost four times the size of the city of Vancouver. So, how is that possible? What's the difference? Um, that, I think that's a really good question, and I think that it really kind of shows you how different Vancouver is from 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 certainly the rest of the of the country but even as different as say a, a kind of global metropolis as Toronto. Right, for some reason Vancouver Metro Vancouver is much more attractive. Do you think we are on the path to try to figure out why that is? I I think so. I think that um I I've described this as a kind of emerging polaroid photo of what's of of some of the forces that shape prices in the in the metropolitan Vancouver area and i think that you know now with this understanding that we're talking about 75 billion dollars of real estate i think that we i think that clearly sets a direction for the kinds of policies that we're going to need at a local provincial and federal level right so th- we're talking about property that is already owned by non-residents do we have a time frame over which that was bought or is that just to today that's just a current time frame, and you got to remember this doesn't include pre-sales or corporate ownership. Uh, this is just where you're able to track the individual ownership of properties. And is this um, can it be numbered corporations? Like, do we know where all these p- owners are from? Um, well, the number of corporations are actually excluded from this count. Oh. Uh, I think the uh, origins of the, the, the countries of origins has not been yet. Uh, that's a good question. And I think that I hope that that's, a, that's another data set that will be released over time to really understand our relationships to the rest of the world and really where are the sources of, of capital from, from, from the rest of the world coming into Vancouver real estate. What kind of an impact do you think this $75 billion has had, Andy? Well, I think that it's it's interesting because the, it's the real nature of that of that real of where that real estate is landing and where it's landing. Uh, we're talking about units that tend to be more expensive and also newer. And in particular, we're looking at um, a lot of condos, as an example. Um, certainly in the single detached homes, but when we, when we look at say new condos that are built in specific cities, um, for, as an example, one in four units, new condos that are built in, uh, in, in Richmond, it's, it's, it's owned by someone who's a non-resident. Well, do you think that interest is still there or has the, the real popularity of this kind of waned a little bit? Well, I think that's the interesting kind of question is that, of course, um, has the popularity waned in, in the face of the, um, of the new regulations that have occurred, uh, with the, with, with, with the province? But then, of course, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to note that with the new recent federal election, the kinds of, if you will, funding in terms of, uh, audit teams at the CRA, as well as the enforcement, a enforcement framework by, by, uh, by, by government to look at the role of, mortgage fraud and money laundering, that this is all, I think, part of the kinds of much needed, I think, long, uh, long needed um, yeah. um, moves that we needed to, to occur. Right. But when you see a number like that, $75 billion in Metro Vancouver, doesn't that kind of make you feel like the ship has sailed and we missed it? Well, I mean, I, I think it's not only a question of whether the ship has sailed or that we missed it or whether, say, for example, the, you know, the, the horse has bolted from the barn. But as I, with that horse bolting out of the barn, we still got to save the farm. Right. So you're saying there's still more we could do. There is still a lot more we can do and we need to do it. And I think that we, we only have a very specific window to do this because I think that it really covers really what kind of community we want to build in metropolitan Vancouver. Right. Do you think the overriding question here then, though, is like we have to figure out why? Why was Metro Vancouver or is Metro Vancouver clearly the most attractive place in Canada for non-residents to, to purchase property? 
I think it's it's not only the question of why, but it's what we're going to do. And I think that it's learning from jurisdictions around the world. And it's it's interesting to note that this is something that isn't just happening in just the city of metropolitan Vancouver, but it's actually happening in 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 various um, safe and desirable cities around the world. And really learning the kinds of policies that they're adapting, and indeed maybe even creating kind of new policies that we need to make for our rather unique situation here in metropolitan Vancouver. Did that number surprise you? with how high it was? Um, well, the fact of the matter is that this number could be actually a lot higher uh, once you start rolling in things like pre-sales and you roll in things like corporate ownership. And I think that it at least is a baseline. It's a snapshot of a very specific time. But then as we kind of move forward, I think that we'll, we'll see really what the effects are in terms of the policies that we've adapted. But then the fact of the matter is, is that we still need some ongoing policies in terms of transparency and accountability. Yes. Okay. Now that we know this number, now that we're getting a better picture, then Andy, what do we need to do next? Well, I think what we're going to what we're going to need to do next is really, I think, first, actually, how's this? Enforce the rules that we already have. That fundamentally, we need to ensure that the institutions that are entrusted towards protecting us and enforcing the 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 rules and the laws that we've passed are properly supported and, as a consequence, also um, also enforced. Right. Are we doing that, though? That's a good question. I think that as it seems to be, it seems to be on a weekly basis that we begin to understand really how how much things like money laundering are just riling through our system here. And it's certainly landing in the real estate market. And I think that fundamentally it's, it's ensuring that that, um, that those, that type of research is ongoing. But then I think in the emerging um, story that is coming out of there, um, ensuring that we start closing those loopholes, we start really securing our, well, securing our home. Right. Still a lot more work to do on this. Listen, Andy, thank you so much for your time. Always my pleasure. That is Andy Yan, urban planner and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Well, would you do this? Would you get on an airplane that was electric? I know, right? This is a very new and radical idea, but guess what? Not as radical as you might think, because Harbor Air has announced plans to add a zero-emission battery-powered airplane to its fleet. And this would be, if it's done, the first time something like this had ever been taken on. So we, obviously, we have so many questions, right? Like, how is this going to work? Is this technology even available? Uh, how long would the plane be able to fly for? Let's talk to Greg McDougall about this, who's the CEO of Harbor Air. Hi, Greg. Good morning. Where did you come up with this idea? Well, I've actually been uh, interested in this idea for a number of years. We've, uh, or personally, I've always been a bit of an early adopter of technology. And, um, you know, we're, we're looking at what's going on. I go to a lot of seminars and, and, uh, and basically learn about, you know, what's coming down the, down the pipe or over the hill in terms of, of development and transportation. And, and, it, and it's really evident that uh, transportation is going almost purely electric in the future. So, and electric aviation is a um, is a is a is a huge um, subject, and there's being there's been huge investment in the uh, in the battery technology, and it's it's definitely something that's coming very very soon, and um, and and we'd like to even make it come sooner, and and we're looking at the technology right now. Um, and have partnered with a company that uh, that together we can actually make it happen with the existing technology as it is today, at least in a prototype, and uh, prove out the the technology is you know that that needs to get through the regulatory process uh, to actually carry uh, passengers in right. the near future. So there isn't actually an electric airplane yet. Well, there are electric airplanes, but they're um, they're mostly you know sort of uh, trainer type airplanes, two seaters, uh, very light. Um, it hasn't been there hasn't been a commercial flight in a commercial style airplane in a purely electric airplane yet. So we would be the first, and uh, we're very excited about about charting that that new territory because it's totally doable. Okay, how is it doable? Like, what would the range be like on this? Well, so the, it gets into a bit of a, a technical discussion on, on, on batteries, and uh, the only impediment have for aviation so far has been the battery life and the battery weight. And so we're talking about watt-hours uh, per kilogram. And 
Um, and right now we're kind of at the 200 to 250 watt hour per, per kilogram range. And in order for, for aviation to be, um, you know, quote unquote, economically viable for sort of, um, you know, even sort of medium range uh, aircraft, um, you know, they're traditional style aircraft that need to, you know, be pressurized and go to higher uh, altitudes and faster speeds and all that. You're, you're looking at sort of the 400 watt hour range, which is a fair ways down the road. Um, but currently, with with our unique position in 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 the aviation, you know, sort of um, uh, market, where our flights are average flight of, of around thirty minutes, and and so that that makes us quite unique. I mean, we're we're you know short stage length. We have single engine airplanes, with, which require um, a lot less energy to actually complete that mission. So when, when you look at that and you apply this current technology, um, we're able to do a half an hour flight, or you know, our, our calculations and simple math, a uh, half an hour flight with a half an hour reserve on a, on a converted um, de Havilland Beaver seaplane, um, but the load would be quite limited. And the reason that this all makes sense is that, to, to, as I said before, to get through the regulatory process as the, as the batteries are evolving, and the battery's evolving quickly. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the conventional wisdom is that in the next two years, there'll be a 50% increase in the watt hours per, per kilogram. So that brings it into a range, you know, every time that goes up, we can carry more and we can go further. And um, so that, that makes it totally practical. And in the meantime, we have an airplane that, uh, that we can, you know, that will in every way be the same technology as what we will use to actually carry passengers. Can it carry the same amount of passengers and this and everything? Will everything else be the same? Well, no, not in the, not in the prototype because of the fact that the batteries are still, um, you know, quite heavy for, for the amount of, but we need to get a, we want to have a half an hour range of the half an hour reserve. So a one hour flight or one hour of flight time, the batteries are quite heavy. So the, so the load will be quite restricted in the aircraft, like, you know, down to a, two or three passengers, but, but the, as as we're getting through that process, we're not able to carry passengers, you know, paying passengers anyway until it gets through the regulatory process, and that they, you know, have to prove the the safety levels as good or better than what we have now. Right. And and so the, the batteries are continuing to evolve during that whole during that whole process, and then by the time we're through there, we we have batteries that are actually. Um, going to give us better range and better payload. You mentioned that like what you would have with the electric plane is like a half hour flight with a half hour reserve, right? That's what it would power. Correct. How does that compare to what you have now? It's well, so in, in conventional aircraft with a turbine or a piston engine, you have, you know, you have to have a reserve of fuel. So it's the same. Like we would have a, we have a, a certain amount of fuel on board and, and don't forget we want to, we want to restrict our load of fuel because um, you know, less fuel, more weight in the airplane. So right. we can take a higher passenger load um, with that. <clears throat> and of course, that's, that's the difference with batteries. They remain the same weight no matter what. Um, but when we restrict the, the, the fuel, we restrict it to the, the length of the flight plus a reserve. So it's the same thing. Um, and, and, and the legal reserve is a half an hour for visual flight rules. Okay, so, so how, how long do you think you might be able to, how long in the future, how long is this going to take? Well, so our schedule is we'll have a we'll have a prototype in the air by November, um, around November. That's our that's our target, and that's totally doable because the 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 technology exists today, right? And our partnership with Magni X, which is the the company that's going to um, pioneer this with us, is uh, has the has the motor uh, now, and and you know it's all ready to go. So we basically just have to fit it to the airplane, and we can get it in the air. Okay. And um, I plan on being the pilot flying the first flight, by the way. Okay. Well, you don't want to have a feeling we're going to be talking again when that happens, actually, Greg. So listen, thank you so much for your time on this. No problem. That is fascinating. That is Greg McDougall, the CEO of Harbor Air. They are planning, making plans, getting ready for their first zero-emission battery-powered airplane, so an electric airplane that they want to add to their fleet. I've always been a little reluctant to talk about this next story ever since it came out because it just kind of completely grosses me out. But do you remember that story about the rat that was found in the bowl of chowder at that Vancouver restaurant. Uh, In case you don't remember, have a little refresher from Global News reporter and CKNW host, Jill Bennett. What is this? Oh my God, it's a dead... (gasps) 
Is it supposed to be there? The video posted to Instagram Thursday shows what appears to be a rodent served in a bread bowl of soup at the Crab Park Chowdery. Those behind the post tell Global News in an email they were given a full refund and a gift card after they discovered the rat. If this situation occurred and it's, and it's legitimate, we're, we're more than willing to own up to it, work with the health department, figure all that stuff out. The incident prompted inspections by Vancouver Coastal Health. The chowdery was allowed to remain open, but Mammy Taylor's was shut down after inspectors found evidence of a rodent infestation in the commissary kitchen in the basement. That's where the chowdery rented space to prepare its soup. Closure is one of the tools. You know, we don't use that tool lightly. It's something that we sort of reserve for where we feel that we need to address an imminent health hazard. Mammy Taylor's has now severed all ties with the Crab Park Chowdery, saying renting out the commissary kitchen space was an experiment they won't be repeating. There were a few issues about uh, about keeping things tidy uh, in organization um, that were, you know, addressed and, and dealt with, but continually kind of uh, ongoing. Oliver also wants his customers to know the Mammy Taylor's kitchen was in no way part of the problem. It's an open space and on the main floor. The commissary is in the basement um, and completely separate. You know, it's not like we were sharing staff or uh, sharing ingredients or, or sharing cooking space. Everything was separate. As for the investigation, Vancouver Coastal Health says it's concluded, but we may never know how a rodent got into the clam chowder. Oh, I think now we have a better idea about that. That's why we're talking about this today. And our contributor, Claire Allen, joins us now uh, for more on this. So, Claire, this is a whole new level of information we've received on this. This is a disturbing amount of information that we have received about the inspection done at the commissary of Mammy Taylor's. So, not this is the kitchen underneath that they rented out to the Crab Park Chowdery. So the details that you're about to hear were uh, revealed after an inspection on December 28th. And also we should note, they're gross. Yes. Beware. These, and this is, comes very. from the City of Vancouver's inspection report. Yes. So here are some of what they found in the basement of Mammy Taylor's, in the commissary that was used to prepare the food for Crab Park Chowdery. Ready, Simi? Are you ready? I'm, I'm okay. bracing myself, so, yes. First thing is they spotted a cockroach running over the owner's head, the owner that was there allowing for the inspectors to come. A cockroach just On the ceiling by. over his yeah. head. Gross. All right. There's no sink for food prep wa uh, workers to wash their hands. A sewage pipe ran directly over a burner for cooking. Splattered food covered the walls on the walk-in cooler. Mouse droppings were noted in the food prep and storage areas. And here it is, a thick accumulation of rodent excrement and accumulated debris was noted on the plumbing lines situated above the cooking equipment. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. And also they noted that the food, when it was uh, being stored, was not stored with lids on it or any protective covering. So I think now... With all this evidence that was presented in the report from Vancouver Coastal Health and the bylaw inspectors, I think we can put together what happened. I think we can. <laughs> yeah. So if we remember back to when this happened, and I really feel for the two girls, uh, the young women who had this happen to them, mm -hmm. because they they got they took a lot of grief from people too who who accused them of of making this up. Well, because that image of the rat in the soup is so just gross. so unbelievable and so gross. Because I could not imagine dipping my spoon into a soup bowl or a bread bowl in this case and pulling out a rat. Like it is so gross that people did not want to believe that it actually happened. And that is what occurred is that people thought that this was a computer graphics sort of image um, or that they had manipulated the image in some way. And these two young girls that have posted it on Instagram were being called liars. And the owner of Crab Park Chowdery did not come out really and say that this video was a hoax, but he kept questioning its on, uh, authenticity of when he was speaking on various radio shows. Including on our Linda Steele show. Have a listen. Uh, in the day and age that we live in, uh, with social media being so prevalent, um, and with how quickly it all spread and how viral it went, uh, the image is just too much for us to try and outrun or or get the get the other side of the story out there. Um, you know, there's uh, a lot of different factors that go into it, especially 
when I, when you're talking about um, social media and SEO management, which is search engine optimization. Mm-hmm. Um, when you Google Crab Park Chowdhury, that image comes up right away, and it's almost impossible to bury it or generate enough content to 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 bury the image. And whether it's true or whether it's false, um, the fact is that uh, that it's out there, uh, and that it's something that has has ruined the brand and there's there's no way for us to uh to to get away from it so um you know we tried for about three to four weeks here to uh to to weather the storm and see whether or not the dust would settle and that people would come back realizing that we have a great product and and all that but um it became pretty apparent that uh that the battle we were trying to fight was one that we weren't going to win and uh and from a financial standpoint it just wasn't something that we could um could out outlast okay so that is the owner of the now closed crab park chattery ashton phillips he was on the linda steel show back in january uh here's an idea claire that i just you know thought of listening to him how about worry more about making sure your kitchen is spotless rather than search engine optimization <laughs> just an idea yeah might have helped um i mean so in that conversation he was obviously talking about the fact that Despite staying open after um, the incident, the rat soup incident, he just it wasn't feasible for him. It would like people had seen this image, and you know they were not going to Crab Park Chowdhury. He and but he was also denying it for a long time that this did, what didn't happen. That they, he did believe that this did not happen the yes. way these young girls had said it did. But now, when you get this report from the city of Vancouver's health inspectors, they called the food unfit for human consumption. Right. And so I wonder about the people that had eaten there prior to oh. this report coming out. Um, I mean, you know, I was reading about the, the closures for restaurants and um, there are 35 restaurants that were closed in 2018. And, you know, pest infestation and issues like not having hot water are actually more common than you think. That's what one uh, bylaw or inspector was quoted as saying. So usually restaurants can close down uh, sometimes only for a day and then they're able to prove that they have rectified the situation and then they reopen. In this case, um, Mammy Taylor's was opened a day later, but the commissary uh, did not. And Crab Park Chowdhury eventually did shut down permanently because of the fact that all this negative publicity. So I don't know. This is uh, very gross very disturbing to read and i think for me the mystery is solved about how the rat got oh, in the soup i think the mystery once you read through this report uh which you can also find online you can actually go to our website as well go, go to globalnews.ca they'll have mm-hmm. the story there uh once you read through the report i think yeah i feel like i feel for those two young women uh who did this because they did try to stay as anonymous as possible or just didn't want to talk about it because yeah. they said look this happened to us and they took a lot of grief from people mm-hmm. over it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they are sort of vindicated, I guess, from this uh, from this report from Vancouver Coastal Health. My question to you, Simi, is that you know you can go on the Vancouver Coastal Health website and look at your res- the re- your favorite restaurant and see what kind of health code violations it's had. Would you actively do that, or would you just want to be blindfully like unaware? I will tell you, I've never done that. Yeah. I haven't done it for years, actually. I have done it before. Right. Uh, but um, I did stop going to a restaurant. <laughs> I'm trying to be very careful here. I did stop going to a restaurant in my neighborhood Yeah. because I thought it had cleanliness issues. You know that, I know you know the documentary because you've watched it too, the Euro Dreams of Sushi. Oh, yeah, yeah. About the Japanese restaurant in Tokyo mm-hmm. and he is fastidious, like yes. super clean. And after watching that documentary, I went to a restaurant in my neighborhood, as I always was doing at that time, and was waiting for my takeout order and was taking a good look around and then realized, Euro would not eat here. And I, when I realized that, I, I never went back. After that, I looked, I was like, oh, I can't believe I didn't see all of this before. Yeah. And I never went back. That has happened to me. I mean, I've worked in restaurants in the kitchens and as a server and... Uh, when I was younger, I worked in a restaurant, which I will not name, but is no longer open, so no one has uh-huh. to worry, where you know there are definitely some health code violations. And uh, I think now, as I get a little bit older, I realize how serious those could have been. Um, and I, had too, have 
gone to restaurants where maybe I've done takeout and stuff and had the opportunity to kind of look around or maybe use a washroom. Yes, that you, that's a big and, key too, right? And you're like, oh, uh, I don't really come through this hallway ever. And this is a little disturbing, but the food's so good. <laughs> what do I do? I know. And in this case, I'm sure people thought that too, but you'd read through that city of Vancouver and health inspection report and they were putting, according to the report, vats of soup that they had just cooked into the cooler without even putting a lid on it. Yes, with also rodent the cooler uh, excrement they, yes. around in the cooler. So obviously there was a pest problem. So, you know, you could think that maybe if there is rodent excrement around, that a rat could maybe climb up and fall into the soup. Oh, I think you're right. I think we now know exactly what happened in this particular case. Mm-hmm. So are you now going to be regularly checking this list to see? I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> you don't want to know ignorance is I just bliss? you know if I don't get sick it's good I guess oh Claire <laughs> it's good Claire. for me I wash my hands on a regular basis I don't know I'm just you don't want to know if a yeah, restaurant that you go to has been cited by the city for a health problem I don't know I don't think I I what if it was your favorite restaurant Claire I know that's what the problem is is that what am I going to give up on this delicious food because maybe yeah they don't have because once you know you can't unknow it I know and that's the problem I just I I just don't know if I could do it I know it's the right thing to do but it depends on the food Well, let's see how other people feel about that, <laughs> shall we? Let's talk some earthquake preparedness. And I know right now you're thinking, oh, wow, I didn't mean to get that earthquake preparedness kit all set up in my garage. We always say that every time we talk about this story, but we never quite get around to it. Well, there was a recent story in the Star Vancouver newspaper that actually made us think even more about what we would do if a major earthquake hit this city. We know that it's inevitable that at some point their big one will hit here, but this investigative report actually took a look at what would happen to our water supply if we were to be impacted by a big earthquake. To talk more about this, Michael Mui joins us now, a Star Vancouver investigative reporter. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So tell me, what did you take a look at here? Well, uh, it started out because I noticed um, uh, a water utility over in Alberta, EPCOR, had been looking at uh, alternative water sources, how to bring in more water if they couldn't provide water based on lessons from uh, Fort McMurray and the Calgary floods. And, you know, I just thought, hey, you know, this is something that BC should probably be thinking about considering we're, we're going to be having this earthquake or we're talking about it. And, you know, it wasn't too surprising that uh, BC government had thought about it. They had determined that here's what we need, 15 million litres per day, uh, assuming that a million residents would be affected and out of water until the water services get brought back up. So we started going around saying, hey, look, uh, now that these numbers are out there, you know, what can each of you, each of you as in respective governments all around, provide? And what did you find out? Well, uh, it's early days is what I found out. Uh, Everybody sort of had to pause and take a look at what their existing equipment was. I don't think that there is currently right now a coordinated effort to buy and new equipment to fill that demand so much as they're tallying inventory that they're trying to figure out who's going to do what. Um, I've been told that we are supposed to have a regional uh, 22 municipality joint water emergency drinking water plan uh, at some point. Um, It should have been already completed, but as far as I can tell, it hasn't. Um, And, in speaking with many of the cities, I could tell that some of them had thought about it. Others, it was so far back on the back burner that, some, you know, it was almost like they were scared to talk about this. And so, Michael, that's <laughs> kind of surprising, isn't it, though? Because we always get told that we need to be prepared, right? We have the great shakeout every year. Uh, we're always told, here are the things you need. They're very good at telling us what we need to do, but it sounds like governments also need to learn that lesson. Well, well, that's exactly it. When I approached, um, you know, Emergency Management BC, the Canadian Armed Forces, the, the multiple city halls, the, the regional uh, IPREM is what they call it, uh, the regional group of governments, they, they all said the first response to me was, well, you know, what we really hope is everybody prepares their own drinking water. And I'd say to them, well, look, uh, what I'm trying to do is tell the taxpayers what they're paying for and then what you're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they, they were a bit taken aback and, you know, said, okay, well, well I suppose we, we do need to answer something. Um, and, and to that, I, I think, you know, 
when you're talking about the larger, uh, richer municipalities like like Vancouver, Surrey, they, they have a good idea um, of what they might do. Um, you know, Vancouver, they've got 25 different community centers. They're all posted on the website, um, vancouver.ca. Um, and if you have one in your neighborhood, the message I've been given is, look, if you need supplies, we will try to have volunteers there at those centers. We will try to distribute supplies at those centers. We're going to uh, isolate parts of the uh, water pumping, uh, water you know, pipe system, right. attach pumps to them. So we can you know, get water out of a hydrant, put it into a filter. We'll have something for you. With Surrey, it's much the same message. They've identified eight potential sites where they might park uh, essentially their fire trucks. They've got three fire trucks that can do uh, water um, purification. Um, and these sites will be, you know, ponds, they'll be rivers, et cetera. Um, they haven't released those sites, but they have that in place. And their plan is to use uh, resources such as yourselves, you know, radio, in right. the event of an emergency, to let people know. Smaller municipalities, not so much. They'll probably have to rely on their neighbors. Well, that's unfortunate then. So for Vancouver and Surrey, there's a plan, but lots of other municipalities, not so much is what you're saying. Yeah. So so I think a lot of uh, other municipalities are hoping that, uh, you know, Metro Vancouver will step in, you know, the regional water utility or perhaps the provincial government would come and help or perhaps the military would identify, you know, pockets that, that need help and step in and you know, and with respect to that, if the provincial government does come through and does sign all these agreements with, with water um, beverage bottling companies um, to bring in sort of a second wave of resources, the relief supplies, if, you know, the military deploys and they, they claim to be able to do so anywhere in the country within 24 hours um, upon receiving a request, uh, then, then you know, if all those come into place, then maybe they don't have to worry. But, right. uh, you know, even when the armed forces was, um, it was just a, at an emergency planning conference where uh, the armed forces were telling, uh, you know, YVR, the cities, etc., exactly how to request their assistance. There was some criticism from, from municipalities in B.C. that had requested their help before. You know, one comment from, from one, uh, I think it was a fire chief, was that we asked for the help. It came 20, 72 hours too late. It wasn't what we asked for. So what's going to happen when the earthquake comes? So do you think that we go through this, Michael, as well? Because we haven't gone through the kinds of emergencies they've had in, like, uh, Alberta. They had those former wildfires. So they've learned, right, what they need to do. We haven't really had a situation like that. That's, you know, the feedback that I've been giving, given, certainly. Um, I think attitudes are starting to change. Uh, you know, there was a lot that I wanted to include in there, such as in Washington State, I spoke with their military department. And they undertook a uh, exercise, um, the same exercise that uh, uh, our BC government, you know, conducted to determine that we need this much water. And their findings were that, look, um, we probably can't source that much resources locally in Washington state. So we're going to have the ship. It's called the USS Bob Hope. Uh, we're going to base in San Diego, and it's just going to sit there. And if the castery ever comes, we're going to load it up with whatever we need whatever right. we have at that point, and we'll just send that ship up. It should get there in five days. Wow, that's, so, a, that's so, the plan. <laughs> you know, so, so I think there is a shifting attitude, even in regions that perhaps have had less experience with disasters, that perhaps there needs to be um, a plan that proactively pushes resources as soon as a disaster strikes, rather than... Um, what uh, is currently the standard in Canada is when you are overwhelmed as a lower level of government, then you seek resources and help from a higher level. Right. And it's very much reactive where a request is made and the resources delivered later. This when is, yeah, this is changed. kind of scary stuff, though, Michael. What kind of response have you gotten since uh, this report came out? Well, uh, I think, you know, a lot of folks in BC understand that, you know, the earthquake is coming and and it reinforces that message that you know people do need to prepare we can hold the government to account as much as we want but at the same time you know me writing something like this isn't going to magically uh, open up a new multi-million dollar budget for everybody to to suddenly equip themselves i think the message is still the same that even though governments do have some accountability, and they are required to provide something. Um, 
if they don't have enough, you're, you're out of luck and, and you need to figure out a way to take care of yourselves. Um, you know, I think this is something that multiple levels of government have thought about to the consideration that, you know, even thinking about whether anybody would show up for work right? Uh, beyond, you know, the current shift. I think there's a lot of those conversations that need to be had. And I don't know that it's so much them reacting to my story as this is information they've already understood. And I think what I want to do by telling that story is to let everyone know, look, look, these are some of the conversations that's happening. No, it's not done. It might not be completed in time for the earthquake, but, but people are concerned about this. Uh, people in positions that can do something about it. Right. So that's a good lesson for us, though, too, isn't it, Michael? Because we tend to think that, oh, okay, I may not have gotten my earthquake kit together or anything like that. But, you know, the government will be there. They're going to have to look after us. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thinking as well. And I think people uh, generally may think that they have more than they uh, have actually prepared for it. You know, I, I think back to a government survey. It was um, it's published February 2018, and it said only four in ten people in British Columbia don't have three days' worth of drinking water. And I'm thinking of, you know, people I know around me. Yeah. And almost all of them don't have three days' worth of drinking water just sitting around. I know I have 24 bottles of 500 milliliter water in my vehicle's trunk at all times. But uh, beyond that, I mean, even looking around my home, uh, no, I don't have... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Three days worth. And you're the reporter doing this story. <laughs> it is a good lesson for all of us. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate your time. That was such a good lesson for all of us. That's Michael Mui. He's a star Vancouver investigative reporter. Time for us to talk a little etiquette today. And the reason why is that there's a particular clip that has been making the rounds on social media. And we're going to talk more about this now with the help of our contributor, Claire Allen. How are you? Good, Simi. Good to be back, back for the third time on the show. <laughs> That's your job. I know. That's your job. You come on to talk about stuff. I got so many opinions on things. She really does. We've been telling her for years, you really should come on more and talk about the things you get fired up about. And today you're fired up about etiquette. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of my favorite topics. I know we've discussed etiquette a lot on the show. You and I discuss etiquette off air. Um, I just love hearing about people's differing opinions on etiquette and stories about etiquette. And uh, this is a story about etiquette. And it is um, a old clip of the poet and activist Dr. Maya Angelou. I think you told me. So we said Angelou because when she came through town here about what is it five years ago or so, yeah. and the commercials all said Maya Angelou, and so we asked. We said, "Are you sure it's Maya Angelou?" We thought it was Maya Angelou, and we were told that the correct pronunciation is Angelou. Right, because I said Angelou, and everyone was, was talking like about Angelou. this said Angelou. So, Dr. Maya Angelou, this is a clip from 1990, and it has resurfaced and gone viral. In this clip, she takes issue with a way a young woman in the audience addresses her. Let's take a listen. Got a question? Yeah, I wanted to ask Maya her views on interracial relationships. Oh, thank you. And first, I'm Miss Angelo. Kim, you had a question. Kim, you had a question. Yeah, I wanted to ask Maya her views on interracial relationships. Oh, thank you. And first, I'm Miss Angelo. Miss Angelo. Yes, ma'am. I'm not Maya. I'm 62 years old. <laughs> I have lived so long and tried so hard that a young woman like you or any other has no, you have no license to come up to me and call me by my first name. That's first. That's first. Also because at the same time I am your mother, I'm your auntie, I'm your teacher, I'm your professor. You see? Amen. I am so in agreement with her on that. Yeah, I was... Oh, are you not? <laughs> well, it's interesting. <laughs> so people are very split on this issue. Um, a lot of people say it's a matter of respect and you should address your elders with the proper title that they feel comfortable with you using, whether it be miss, mister, doctor, whatever. Sir, madam, ma'am. Whatever they want. Yeah, exactly. But some people are saying that what Dr. Angelo was saying is actually quite outdated. And the person that actually tweeted out this clip said that people nowadays, when you become an adult at 18, that they feel like they're on an even playing field with everybody. And I will say, when I started working here and calling people to book them on the show, I would always say Mr. or Mrs., whoever we were looking to book on the show. Right. 
And I was talking to a former producer here who said, why do you say Mr. and Mrs.? And I was like, well, I just think that's polite. And she said, no, you are, they're equal. You should just call them by their first name. And this was like, like my mind was blown (laughs) when she said this to me. I think you were actually right though. I think so too. And I will say in my personal life, I do, when I meet somebody that is older than me, I say Mr. Mrs. Doctor, whatever their title is, until they tell me, just call me Sue or whatever, you know? And I think that's the way to go until they tell you otherwise. Um, I was telling Clara a story and she knows this one. There's a a friend of our family's who I've known since I was five years old and I still refer to him as Mr. Mm -hmm. And he's told me so many times, Simi, stop saying Mr. You can call me by my first name. And I still can't do it. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm 47 years old and I still can't do it because I've known him for so long. Right. And I saw one of my old teachers recently at the dog park and I referred to him as Mr. O'Connor. And he was like, no, you can call me like you're 30 years old now. You don't need to call me this. And I I literally could not do it. Every single time I tried no, it, I went out to go say I goodbye to him. I said the same thing. But remember we had my grade two teacher come here. She came uh, mm-hmm. to the station. Must have been six years, five, six years ago. Yeah. And I still referred to her as Mrs. Stewart. How can I not? I yeah, was in it, my 40s. It's a, it's a strange one. Maybe we're just pro... If you say it so much when you're younger, it, it feels weird to suddenly be like, oh, well, I'm an adult now and I should call you by your first name. But um, I thought that was very interesting. And I thought it was really interesting about the perspective that people have that once they reach adulthood, that everyone's on the All same... All are off. Yeah. We're How on the plane. Was the young field. woman in that clip? So in that clip, she was around 20 years old. Oh, she sounded younger. Okay. Yeah. And so when they caught up with her recently, because this clip was going around, she's now 49 years old. And she said that she remembers when, when that happened with Dr. Angelo, she felt very sort of taken aback by what Dr. Angelo said, because she really respected Dr. Angelo and she felt that she had insulted her. And now she's 49 years old. And looking back on it, she says she sees both sides of the argument. So she sees the outdatedness, but she also sees that that is a matter of being polite. And you know what, to me, this made me think about a clip from one of your favorite shows. It reminds me of this clip from Seinfeld. Oh, gosh. What what are you getting, Bob? (laughs) Good question. We'll need a few minutes. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but I didn't mention it earlier, but actually I prefer to be called maestro. Excuse me? Well, you know, I am a conductor. Yeah? So? Oh, I suppose it's okay for Leonard Bernstein to be called maestro because he conducted the New York Philharmonic. So he gets to be called maestro, and I don't. (laughs) Well, I mean, don't you think that he was probably called maestro while he was conducting? Not in social situations. I mean, his friends probably just called him Lenny. That, I was exactly thinking of that clip today, Very or that funny. show, that episode, Maestro Today. Some people like their titles. I would think if I were a doctor, I would insist on being called doctor at all times because I worked very hard, theoretically, to become a doctor. So I would want to be called doctor. All the time? Yeah, Dr. Allen. Really? For sure. Because I have a cousin, uh, and she's your age, and she had just got her PhD mm-hmm. last year. So technically, she is a doctor, but she always says, no, I'm not that kind of doctor. I'm not a medical doctor. But I still say, hey, you earned it. Yeah. I'm going to call you doctor. Does not matter. Doctor. <laughs> That's, I, would, I would love it. If I, were, if I worked that long to either get a PhD or become a medical doctor, I would want to be referred as doctor at all times. If someone called me Mrs. Allen, I'd be like, it's doctor to you. Okay, so when I went through this with my kids' friends when the kids were younger, Mm -hmm. uh, it was always, they called me, you know, Mrs. whatever, and then I would say, no, no, it's okay, call me Simmy. So, but I, you know, I I really was taken aback if they didn't say that at first. They just walked in and said, hey, Simmy. Yeah, there would be one or two of my son's friends who would have tried that at some point. Well, I looked up what the proper (laughs) etiquette is, and it's like what we discussed earlier, is that when you're meeting someone that is older than you, um... Or even just, that, yeah, if you're meeting someone that's older than you or just someone you want to show respect to, um, you should always call them by Mr., Mrs., Ms., Doctor, whatever, whatever, and then wait for them to say, no, no, it's fine, call me blank. And so I that is the correct etiquette. However... Apparently, it's not yeah, not the thing to do nowadays. Not for everybody. A pretty sizable number of people, 26% of the people on our hot question of the day think it's just old-fashioned. 
Interesting. Very That's almost interesting. one in three. And I was wondering about when I have my, uh, if I have children and they have friends, hopefully, um, <laughs> they will, what, will I insist on being called Mrs. Allen or whatever my last name is at, at that point? Um, or yeah. if I'd be like, just call me Claire. I what don't know. What will you insist? I really don't know because I don't, I still picture myself as young Claire. I don't picture myself as anyone calling me well, Mrs. Blank. Welcome to the issue of aging, Claire, because <laughs> wow. that's what happens to all of us. Yours the same on the inside, but apparently it's the outside that this just starts changing. This has been very illuminating. <laughs> it has been illuminating. So we're asking you, what is the deal with titles? What do you think? Like, Do you insist that, yeah, if somebody younger than you, like some, we're talking substantially younger, right? Right, yeah. So if somebody younger than you meets you for the f- first time, should they address you as Mr., Ms., whatever the case may be, until you say to them, no, call me by my first name? Or how do you think think that's just outdated? Question. When I started, I started off as an intern at the show. Oh, yes, she did. (laughs) Much uh, a while ago, a long time ago. And would it have been right for me to have called you Miss Sarah? Or would you have been like, my name's Simi? Like, did I screw up then? I don't even remember. Is that what you called me? No, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) But should I have is what I'm wondering. Was I being rude? I usually beat the interns to the punch. I'll have to ask our new intern that we have out there. But I usually, when I meet them right away, when I'm getting introduced to them, I say, call me Simi. Right. So that's never actually come up, but Hmm. I'll have to remember that about you. 